everybody. This is this is just good to be back. Does anyone have that video memorized yet? Anybody? Halfway there? Okay, okay, we're working on it, we're working on it. Well, as, as I was listening to that, a random story from seventh grade popped into my brain, and I think it might help an illustration for what we're gonna be talking about tonight in James 4, and if it's terrible, I'm sorry. But anyways, I was in ag class. Anyone ever had an ag class before? Yep. <laughs> If you went to Crum, you had an ag class. You did ag and you did workshop and you learned how to weld and you make all of these fun things and I was really bad at all of it. I, but anyways, I was in ag class and uh, we just kind of, we, we got assigned seating and I got put in between the two uh, strong personality, maybe diva type girls that were friends and they they were friends and they always gossiped about everybody everybody in the world and they were very talkative almost always maybe some of you know uh, people like that don't point at anybody don't don't elbow but uh, th that was kind of who they were and just over time because I sat in the middle of them I listened to every single conversation that they had and I just tried to be a nice guy so I kind of became friends with them no Kruskies no Kruskies were involved I would know I didn't have any feelings but I became friends with them and uh, they would always then just start to talk to me about all of their things and like can you believe this and I'm like I don't know what to say I'm just kind of here I can't go anywhere else but anyways we become friends and and they enjoy being around me and, and all of this fun stuff. And then, as what happens in seventh grade, they got in a fight. And it was a pretty brutal fight. And they got to the point where they didn't like each other anymore. They ignored each other. They looked the other way. They talked smack about each other to everybody. They talked smack individually to me about each other. And it was just this real mess of a thing because I'm just trying to be a nice guy and I just want to be friends to both of them but they hated the fact that I was trying to be friends with both of them, and both of them like individually, like, you can't talk to her. I'm like, I'm just trying to be nice. And in uh, the same way, they were like, hey, you can't be friends with me and also be friends with her. It's not gonna work. Well, long story short, I was friends with both of them, and they were fine with it, and they ended up being friends again at some point. I don't know, I remember how it happened, but I remember that we all wrote in each other's yearbooks, and uh, they, they, I don't know, we had a name I, for our little friend group. I didn't, I didn't come up with it, but they wrote it in our yearbook, and they were all friends at the end, and that's, that's not the moral of the story, but I'm sure you were curious if they ever made up, and they did. Uh, but I, I tell that story uh, because as strong as these seventh grade girls uh, emotions, feelings, I don't actually know what to call that, <laughs> but what, as strong as it was, they, they kind of address something of, that, that we feel and that we're going to talk about in the book of James. Now, what I'm not saying is God has the emotions of a seventh grade girl, okay? I'm not going there. I'm just using this illustration. Maybe it breaks down, whatever. Uh, but but the, uh, James is going to talk about God and our relationship to the Lord. And remember, the book of James is all about these tests to measure our faith to see if we are right with God. It's all these people, the, the, the Christian church was exploding 
there in the, in the book of Acts, there in Jerusalem. And so all of these people were, were, were becoming converted, and they would hear the gospel, they'd hear the good news, they were showing up to church, they were excited, and then when persecution hit, a lot of them began uh, to, to fall away. They called it apostasy, that they would begin to kind of recant their faith, like, I actually don't think I believe in this, and uh, there were some people that still did, and there was just this time of confusion. And so James wrote this letter because... He didn't want people to be confused on where they stand before the Lord. And so we've just gone week after week through all of these different tests to measure our faith among these things. And, and last week we talked, James 3, we, we talked about the war of words in our world. The constant back and forth, the constant uh, evil, sinful nature of our tongues, the power that it has and what it reveals about who we are. And he's going to follow up on that and he's going to talk about conflict. He's going, about he's going to talk about conflict uh, between people, conflict in our world, conflict within ourselves, and conflict with God. But the key verse here, we're, we're going through four verses here. I'll read all of them. But the key verse is verse 4. Read with me James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? That's seventh grade girls, that's what we're talking about there. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The main point of James 4 in this early passage is right there in verse 4. It says you can't be, you can't have a friendship with the world and at the same time be right with God, love God, and live for God. He says friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Friendship with one of my seventh grade friends that happened to be a girl, was hostility towards the other one in their mind. See, okay, that's where the story came from. If it was dumb, sorry. But he's saying that you can't be a friend of the world and at the same time be right with God. One, verses 1, 2, and 3 are all pointing and supporting and proving what he is trying to say in verse 4. And remember, we're talking about, man, am I in the faith? Do I have a right relationship with God? How do I know? by the fruit of our lives, by how we live, by our lifestyles. Right? That's what that, that bumper says, that faith works. And so if we have a faith, it should show up in our lives. So we can look at our lives and we can tell a lot about our hearts, a lot about the quality of our faith. And what he's saying here is, if you're a friend of the world, you're hostile towards God. You are an enemy of God. Now, I want to start with verse 4 here a little bit and, and kind of break some of these words down here. First, what does friendship mean? What does James mean when he is talking about this friendship? This word here is uh, philia, 
Philia, it comes from phileo, which means to love. Uh, philos is a friend. It's used multiple times in the Bible. Uh, only, this, this word in this form is used only once, and it's right here talking about friendship. But that root word is to love. Anyone ever been to Philadelphia? Anyone ever been to Philly? Yeah, okay, we got one. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. You may have heard that because in Greek, it literally means love, Philly, Delphia, Delphos means brother. It's the city of brotherly love. And so what James is saying here is this friendship, it's, it's used to talk about love in the sense of having an emotional attachment, my words are crazy, an emotional attachment to or an affection for something. That you have an emotional attachment. It's a lot of what a friendship is. There's an affection for that person. But in this context, it's much deeper than, I don't mind being around this human being. It's a deeper thing. In fact, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. He says, I will sacrifice my life for my friends. That is a strong affection. It's a strong attachment that that person has because of that friendship, because of phileo. And in, in this context, it's attachment to the world. We have an emotional attachment and affection for that is strong. It's not just this one momentary lapse, because I know we talked about this last week of, of, okay, yeah, Christians still sin. There's times where I love things that I shouldn't. But by and large, for us as believers, uh, we are more like Romans 7, that Paul says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And there's this conflict within us. But what he's talking about in this friendship is this, it is a strong, enduring thing. Like that is the predominant feeling and devotion that you have in your life, and it's with the world. Now, when we say world, I don't mean a deep love for nature. That's not what James is talking about. He's not like, hey, tree lovers, this is your verse right here. Go vegan because uh, you have friendship with the world. That's, that's not what he's getting at. It's not about nature and trees and global warming things. Uh, what he's talking about is, is really a system of our world. It is this man-centered, Satan-directed system that which we live in a spiritual world that we live in, and it's hostile to God. This world, worldly desires, they are hostile to God. It refers to, to all the values of this world, or lack thereof, that we would experience. The lifestyle of the world, the ethics of the world, the morality of the world, all of which are established apart from God and anti-God. I mean, just turn on the news. Listen to the, I don't know, the, the teaching of today, the mantras of today. They aren't for God. They're for the self. It is self-centered. It's all about finding your happiness, finding your truth, finding your identity. It's all about the self, and it is anti-God. Here's a verse for you, 1 John 2.15. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So if you're attached to this world and you are living and loving that which is in opposition to God's design and intention, it's the lust of the flesh, the sinful desires that, that we would experience, the lust of the eyes, these desires, this coveting that we have about the things, the material things of this world, the pride of life. I can just tell you, man, if, if we could sum this whole mentality and identity of the world up in a single word, I'd use pride. I'd use pride. It's self-glory. It's self-satisfaction. It is self-indulgence. It's self-righteousness. It's living for yourself. It's selfishness. That's what this world is. It's seven billion people, or I don't know, I don't know where we're at. I don't know how many people, but it's a lot of people living for themselves, living for what they want. That is the world that we live in. The world is filled with prideful people who all want their own way. They all want their own way. And this self-centeredness is incomplete opposition to God and his ways, who is all about self-sacrifice, of laying down your life for your friend, of considering others more important than yourself, not living for yourself but God. Says these things are in opposition. Says you can't be a friend of the world. You can't live for the world. You can't do what the world does and live like the world does because that's not how God operates. He says these things are in opposition to one another. So the question now is, do you know if you are guilty of this? Do you know if you are guilty of being a friend of the world? What are the characteristics of that? How do we know? How do we indicate those things? I mentioned it earlier. There's three indicators that I want to talk about, and this passage really lays out. Number one, there's conflict with others. Number two, there's conflict within yourself. Number three, there's conflict with God, and we're going to look really practically of how we would see those things. Because when, when these things take place in this life, it's usually a direct indication of someone that's living for the world. Someone that's living for the world. First, we're going to see conflict with others. Look at verse 1. He starts it in a question. He says, what is the source? Where does this come from? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? There is quarrels and conflicts among you. I don't know about y'all. I don't know if you pay attention to the news. I don't blame you if you don't. I think I did when the elections watched, and I was a depressed human being and an angry human being and all this mess, and now I've stopped, and I'm like, I think life's better. Uh, but if you just spend an hour watching local news or national news, I mean, it's depressing. Like, just very casually, these new news anchors are like, oh, there was another shooting today. There was another fight. There's another argument. There's another controversy that is in our world. I mean, everywhere around us, there's arguments. There's debates. There are feuds, disagreements. Divorce, lawsuits, countries at war. I mean, around every corner, 
I feel like every day there is something new. There is conflict with others. This is what happens in our world. And, and when we think about the source of that, we got to know what, what, what is that? Why is there conflict? Have you ever thought, it's like, why do these people fight? Like, what is going on? Why are there all of these bad things going on? Well, James gives the answer. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Why is there conflict with others? Because the people of the world are all living for themselves. He says, there are pleasures that are waging war within you. He says, you want... At the end, or look at verse 2, you lust, rather, and you do not have, so you commit murder. So every single person wants to live for themselves. They want their own way. I want what I want. And when people get in their way, when people don't give them what they want, we lash out. There is conflict. So this is nothing new, right? You take away a toy, and a kid gets mad. Why? Because you took away what they want. We've just all grown up, and we become much more dangerous and much more inflammatory with our anger when we don't get what we want. And here's the crazy part. We all want different things, but we can boil it down to the self that we want to live for ourselves. So if you get in the way of what I want, then you are an enemy, he says, but if you give me what I want, if you do what I want, if you think what I think, if you say what I want you to, if you conform to what I feel, then we can be on good terms. But the moment you don't get, give me what I want, if the moment you aren't what I want, you are an enemy. And thus conflict arises. A world filled with self-centered people will constantly butt heads. It's, I mean, it's the only logical conclusion. That's what happens. What's that uh, Dr. Seuss one where the two people just stand in the middle and they like both want to cross paths? Uh, what is that one? Anybody, please, Dr. Seuss fans? You know, they're like really stubborn and they won't ever turn away. They just keep going and they stand there and then they build highways around them and it's just this whole thing. Nobody, okay, <laughs> whatever. Uh, well, the moral of that story is that there's two people and it's like, I'm not gonna budge because I want what I want. This is who I am, and I'm only concerned with myself. And he says, well, same for me. I'm not gonna budge, I'm only concerned with myself. And nothing happens in their lives, ever. They just sit there, staring at each other, mad at each other, because they're in their way. It's completely unproductive, but that's not the point that we're going on. So, here's, here's what I want you to see. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says, what's the source of fighting? For example, why do you, why do you fight with your mom? So why do you get in an argument with your mom? Like, what is going on there? It's not that you have desires and she has desires and they're, they're butting heads. He says, those things are butting heads and, the, and there's an impasse and someone's going to budge, but nobody wants to. But here's the other thing. At the beginning of verse 1, he's talking about external conflict from person to person. 
but he says the source of external conflict is actually internal conflict. Did you notice that? The source of external conflict is actually internal. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says, the reason you're fighting with your mom is because there's a fight inside of you and there's a fight inside of her. He says, that's the source. That is the source. James is making a very clear connection between the desires of our heart and the conflict that we experience. He says that is the connecting part. The desires of your heart is related and connected to conflict that you have in this world. He's saying the conflict is within you. You have desires, and when those desires are not met, you get angry. When life doesn't go your way, you get angry, you get sad, you get depressed, or whatever emotion that you might feel because we didn't get what we wanted. He says, here's what you need to know. Here's the principle. When your heart is ruled by a certain desire, whatever that may be, when it is ruled, it is controlled by a certain desire, there are only two ways you can respond to someone. If they help you get what you, if they help you get you what you want, there's a better way to say that, but you know what I mean, then you're happy with them. When desire rules your heart, if they, if they help you get what you want, you're happy. But if they don't help you, if they get in the way, if they're an obstacle, we lash out. Because the desire rules in your heart. Notice the words that James uses. He says, your pleasures that wage war in your members. So there are desires within our hearts that are waging war. They're fighting. They're fighting for control over our hearts because whatever desire grips our heart influences everything that we do. Whatever desire controls our hearts influences everything that we do. And I don't know if you've ever realized this and actually thought about it, but we are constantly having a variety of desires at the very same time. I was going home uh, from work yesterday. It was like 5.15, 5.30. Asher's with my mom, and Amy is cutting hair at the salon. And as I'm driving home, there's like four or five different things that I kind of want to do. And I'm trying to figure out what I should do. Like, I want to get home. Like, maybe I should just mow because it's, well, it's blazing hot. And I don't know why I wanted to mow. Uh, but I was like, maybe I should just mow. But I also need to sermon prep, so I kind of want to do that so I don't have to do as much on Tuesday. I also just kind of want to sit on the couch and not do anything there. And uh, there was another one. I can't remember what it was. I think eat. That was probably a good one. Uh, I, I, but I, anyways, I'm going there, and I kind of want a little bit of all of these. My heart's like a little pie chart. Right? That's what it is, a pie chart. Like I have a sliver of a desire here. Maybe I have a bigger one that's like this and and another one. And they're all fighting for control. All of these are urges and my brain is processing which one I should choose. And whichever one I choose will now direct my behavior. It will now direct my behavior. So I decided to sermon prep. And I sermon prep for like two hours. And I got confused, and I was like, I don't know what I want to say, so I stopped, and I quit all of that, and I was like, I'm just going to sit on the couch and eat some food, and then I went back to it. And so I had just had these desires that started to control my behavior. I had these desires that wanted to control my behavior. And so knowing that, knowing that the desires of our heart is directly related to the conflict that we experience the more we understand this connection, 
the more that we understand these desires and how they work themselves out in our lives and also how these desires connect to conflict, anger, sadness, tears, whatever it is, the more that we can begin to surrender selfish desires to the Lord. See that? The moment we begin to understand our desires and how they impact us, the moment we begin to know the source of our anger, of our frustration, of our anxiety, of our sadness, of our jealousy, when we know the source, we can begin to work on that source by surrendering it over to the Lord. But if you live your whole life saying stuff like, man, my mom makes me so angry. Man, school just makes me anxious. The moment you just point to events in your life and circumstances in your life and people in your life as the source, the responsibility for your feelings, you'll never fix your problems. You'll live your life as like, man, I think I need to quit this job because I just get anxious. Man, I can't spend time around my parents because they just make me mad. You're just, you're just looking at the fruit of the tree and you're just pulling fruit off and chunking it away and be like, maybe that fixes my problem. It doesn't fix the problem. So you've got to know the source, and the source comes from your desires according to James. Now, let me be clear with this. Circumstances have an impact on our decisions. There's, they, they apply pressure, without a doubt. They apply, apply pressure and there's an influence there, but they are not the ultimate responsibility. It's our desires that are within us. Now also with this, not all of our desires are sinful. Not all of our desires are sinful um, at all, but the problem is when a desire grips our heart, it begins to influence Everything, when a desire, even a good one, grips our heart, maybe not a good one like the Lord. I hope the Lord grips your heart and your desires for him. Uh, but maybe even just like, well, here's an example. Uh, Amy and I, we had a meal, I don't know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and we were baking baked potatoes and making something else. I don't even remember what it was, but Amy's like, you need to use this in a sermon illustration. But anyways, we had been cooking for like 45 minutes, and I love baked potatoes, and I love to do them well, and I just love when they're so like soft and, you, you know, when you just, when you have a good baked potato, you just know, right? And, and so we had, I'd been working on these things for like 45 minutes in there, big potatoes. And I had just been doing all these things, like I'm poking holes in them, and I'm pouring the, pouring the oil in there, and I'm salting them, and I'm taking them out of the oven, I'm flipping them, I'm doing all of this stuff, and it's 45 minutes, which is usually fine. But it, food is ready, all this other stuff is getting cold, and I'm like, okay, it's time. I just got to pull these things out. I pull them out, cut them open, and it's just like rock hard like not cooked at all, and I am so mad. I'm so bummed, I'm just peeved internally, and I'm looking at this thing, and I like cut both of them open, and Amy's is like decent, and so like put some butter on that one, but I'm just frustrated that neither of them go well, because I have this desire, I'm like, I'm gonna make baked potatoes, and it's gonna be so good, and Amy loves baked potatoes, and we're gonna have a nice night, and so that's a good desire, right? I don't think anything is sinful about baked potatoes, I hope not, uh, but, but I have this good desire, but it begins to rule over my heart. And what happens is when my desire isn't met, when I cut that thing open and it's not cooked all the way through, I want to commit murder. 
I want to commit murder in that moment. Let me tell you, I, this is not, this wasn't smart, this wasn't wise. But I took that baked potato that I'd been working for 45 minutes on and I just dumped it in the trash. I just dumped it in the trash and I went and I sat down and I ate my meal and I was just flustered the entire time. And Amy's just like, this is awkward. You're making this awkward and this is weird. And I'm like, I'm going to sit in this, okay? Like, I just, that's where I was, okay? That's where I was. And, and the problem is not that with the desire in that moment, it's that the desire took control of my heart and it, I was ruled by it. I had to have it. It went from an I want thing to I have to have it. I need it. It took control of my heart. I call this holding a desire with a closed fist. It's okay to say, man, I would love a nice baked potato tonight. It's a problem when we close our fist. We say, man, I, I gotta have this baked potato tonight. What a weird analogy. Here we are. But I gotta have this baked potato tonight. And this could be a million different things. He says, man, I want to have a good relationship with my parents. I want to get along with siblings. I want to have good grades. I don't want to fight with roommates. Whatever that may be, I, I have these desires, but then we've got to hold those things loosely. We've got to hold those desires loosely because if you know anything about the Lord, the Lord can turn plans on a dime. The Lord can turn plans on a dime, and in one moment you have this desire, and God's saying, I'm going this way. But if you're too busy just clenching your fists about a stinking baked potato, I'm missing out in that moment on an opportunity to love and serve and enjoy an evening with my wife. Because I'm too worried about a stupid baked potato and the desire that took over my heart. And I missed an opportunity to love the Lord and to serve him and to, and to walk in what he desired for me. Just so you know, in all of these desires, I think we can boil them down to two things. The love of self and the love of God. The worship and service of self and the worship and service of God. And with this, this conflict that we have within us of all of these uh, desires that are waging war within us, I think it's pretty no easy to notice how real this world is experiencing internal conflict. A few examples for you. Have you thought about why there's so much anxiety in our world today? Why there's so much depression in our world today? It is rampant. Unfortunately, suicide isn't going away. It's not being figured out. There's not a learning thing. No matter how close it hits to home, there's a problem there. Prescription medication numbers are increasing yearly. Adults in America, 2019, one in five, were taking psychiatric drugs to help them cope with life to help them cope with what was going on. Mental illness, mental health is one of the biggest conversations everywhere. You say, what is that? What is going on in these areas? My speculation is that, that human beings are in great conflict within, within themselves. They're in great conflict within themselves. There is so much doubt. There is so much guilt. There is so much questioning. There is so much insecurity. You know, Satan came to steal and lie and destroy. That's what he's doing in here. He's stealing 
so much understanding of who we are, of our identity. He's stealing the joy of life, of the purpose of life. I mean, he is wrecking people. And there's this conflict within ourselves. And I also think I mentioned this, that the world experiences great guilt as they rebel against God's design and intentions. As they rebel against God's designs and intentions, I mean, people are eaten alive by a guilty conscience. Eaten alive by a guilty conscience. And I know that the, the, the life of the world of, of superstars and celebrities that just go crazy and um, are, are just kind of living in insane levels of sin with fame and fortune looks glamorous. But I think we're all curious about life outside of those glamorous moments. I mean, if you listen to most of any interviews that you have of, of celebrities, of superstars, or whatever it is, man, it's not glamorous. It's conflict with self. It's eating them alive. And they're just in this cycle of sin that leads to guilt, that leads to emptiness, that leads to futility. And they just try and fill themselves up, and they go back to the same things, the same things. So maybe in the bottle this time, maybe in the pills this time, maybe in the drugs this time, maybe in uh, sex this time, maybe in fame this time, maybe in this this time. But they don't find what they're looking for in the bottom of the bottle. It's not there. All it leads to is more inner turmoil because they are rebelling against God's design and intentions for how we are to operate, for how we are to function, for who we are to live for. Which brings us to our third one. Conflict with God. Read verse 3. Actually, read verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. Sound like what we were just talking about? This is, man, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want that. And then the moment you get that, you say, well, now I want that. Envious. Constantly wanting what you don't have. So you fight and you quarrel. You don't, you do not have because you do not ask. People want so badly the things of their heart that they completely forget God. They do it themselves. They go to manipulation. They go to moody and silence from what they want from the people that are around them. They, they go do everything in their own hands and in their own ways, no matter how nasty it has to get for what they want. Rather than asking God, the giver of all things. But even in that, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And you have people that present some form of religion, but it's all a facade. You have people that use God to get what they want. God's now a waiter to the, to the menu of their desires. Say, oh, I want this. I'll go to church if you make me happy. I'll go to church if you get me around these people, if you get thee this job. I'm just rubbing the lamp, thinking that God is some genie in a bottle. You have people that use God to get what they want rather than seeking to be used by God for whatever he intends. Are you trying to use God 
or be used by him. Who is the king? Who are you living for? That's the question that we're asking in this moment. And right, right here is the climax of the conversation. Who are you living for? Who is on the throne of your heart? Because whatever desire has gripped your heart controls your life. So what do you desire? Who do you love? What are your affections? You might say, oh, it's God. But does that reflect in your life? Is it something else completely? Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? James says, you adulteresses. Here he is referring to a spiritual adultery with God. A spiritual adultery with God. There is a covenant, a commitment that we have made to the Lord that we are his and his alone. Then after all of these things, we give the love that belongs to God. We give the, the devotion that God belongs to God, the worship that belongs to God and God alone, and we go everywhere else but him. Since you're breaking the covenant, you give the love that belongs to me to somebody else. You're being ruled by someone or something that is not me. This is adultery. It's adultery. That's what it is. Whether you would like to admit it or not, the truth of the matter is that we are designed to be ruled. We are designed to worship and serve. That is how God wired us, to worship and serve. And obviously we are wired to worship and serve him. But there's this word called idolatry. There's this thing called idolatry where we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. This is Romans 1. This is Romans 1, 25. That the love that was belonged to God, the worship and, and service that belonged to God, the creator, was exchanged. So actually I'm going to love your creation. It's idolatry. It's to worship something else. The question is not if you are a worshipful person. The question is not if you worship. The question is who. The question is what do you worship? What do you live for? This is why sin, which I would say disobedience to God, Anything that we would say or think or do that is disobedience to God is fundamentally idolatrous. It's being ruled by someone or something other than God. And here's the thing, when we, often, 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 when we think idolatry, we think back to the Israelites and we see some golden calf. And we see all these people bowing down to a golden calf. And we're like, that idolatry thing is stupid. Like, how could they do that? And you know what, I, I, I would think, by and large, nobody in this room like, goes to bed at night and like, worships a golden calf before they go to bed. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Let me just say that. Please don't. But that doesn't mean idolatry isn't still happening. Idolatry is still just as prevalent today as it was then. It might be more subtle. It's not in carved images. It's not in things that, that we would build 
like a golden calf. But it's in relationships. It's in school. It's in material possessions. It's in cars. It's in money. It's in so many things. It's the things that we give so much of our time to. It's the things that break our heart and make us so mad when we don't get them. Say, your emotions are a great tool. Your emotions should tell you so much about yourself. So next time you get angry, next time you get frustrated, would you trace it back? Would you trace it back to the heart? Say, is this an idol in my life? Is this something I'm worshiping? Because if I don't get my way, I lose it. What are those things for you? Because that might be where idolatry is in your life. So what you need to know is that you can't live in both worlds. You can't live for yourself and be a Christian. Jesus says this. He says, you can't serve two masters. He says, you can't serve God and money. So we could have put so many things in there. We can't, can't serve God and material possessions. Can't serve God and serve fame. Can't serve God and, and, and just serve this business and say, I'm going to give it all to this. He says, we serve God and God alone. We can't claim to be a Christian and then live in open rebellion against him. There are not two thrones in your heart. There is one. You've got to decide today who is on the throne of your heart. Next week, we're going to see that God will have no other before him or beside him. He will not rest until your allegiance is to him and to him alone. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you done that? Have you done that today? Have you done that before? And does it show up today? Let me pray that it would. Oh God, you are king. You are the creator of every single one of us in this room. You know us, every in and out, every desire that we had today, every sinful desire, every good desire, every uh, passing thought, every fleeting motivation. You know why we showed up tonight. You know all things. God, would you help us navigate the, the heart Would you help us navigate our desires, the things that we delight in, the anger that we have? Would you help us find the source of the things that we have allowed to take hold of us completely? Would you help us see the things that we idolize, the things we let rule our hearts, that that we would give way too much attention to, way too much delight in? Because you are worthy of it all. You're worthy of every breath. You're worthy of every uh, moment of obedience. God, I pray that we would give that. That we would see you as you, we ought to see you as worthy of worship. So God, as we sing now, as we worship you now, I pray that it would be pleasing to you. 
but our worship would not just be in words tonight, it would be for the rest of our lives. That we would worship and serve you, no other thing. In Jesus' name.